Smartcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Zeke Bronfman. He is the co-founder and CEO of XCV Beverages, a CPG brand builder and incubator with a growing portfolio of both own brands and joint ventures. Zeke is a fourth generation entrepreneur in the beverage alcohol industry and comes to XCD backed by a notable advisory board, including Strauss Zelnick, former chairman of CBS, along with Edgar Bromfman Jr., former CEO of Seagram's and others. In this episode, we dive into the alternative market for better tasting and better for you alcoholic beverages, the competitive landscape, including how XED's brands stack up against the likes of, say, White Claw, Truly Hard, and High Noon, challenges around flavor recipes, and the general chemistry of creating an exceptional tasting product, and much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to my chat with Zeke Bromfman. So let's talk about Sesh. Cocktail meets seltzer, all flavor, no bullshit. We can swear this is a podcast. How did you and Nate start this? Yeah, so Nate and I met when we were in college. We became really fast friends and we started going out to a lot of college parties and events. And what we realized at all these events was really the only option for drinking was value beer. There was Natty Light, there was Keystone XL, but there was very little in terms of alternatives. And Each for our own reasons, that didn't really work for us. For me, I had grown up, my family's been in the alcohol business for four generations, and I grew up drinking a lot of really bold spirits, whether it was whiskeys or gins, with my grandfather. And I missed the experience of sitting, sipping, and experiencing and enjoying the flavor of alcohol. And so I started mixing these great cocktails to go in my dorm room before events. And I never realized that these had 350 calories, 40 grams of sugar and 40 carbs until I met my co-founder, Nate, who is a type one diabetic and was a college athlete. He played rugby and football in school. And he could never have the 400 calories, 30 grams of sugar, 30 grams of carbs in the gin and tonic that I was having. And as he grew up, there was a ton of innovation in the food tech space that allowed him to eat and drink very similar things to his friends. He could have bagels without any carbs. He could have you know, candy without any sugar. But when he got to college, he realized that that innovation had not yet reached the beverage alcohol space. And so the two of us went out onto the market looking for alternatives. And what we realized was nothing was checking both of these boxes at the same time. Nothing was combining that full, authentic, robust flavor profile we were looking for with those better for you attributes that he was demanding. And so we just went back to our dorm room and we started mixing the best of both worlds. And What we realized was what we created here, a better for you, zero sugar, all natural ingredient canned cocktail, actually combined the best of both worlds and sat at the intersection of the fastest growing industries in the entire alcohol category, which was the RTD canned cocktails and the spike seltzers. And it drew on the best aspects of each to create one new hybrid category in between the two. And so long story short, we uh, spent the next year or so commercially developing that recipe and bringing it to market. Talk to me about that commercial development process. There must have been challenges around flavors, recipes, getting that right. Absolutely. So 
it's really funny looking back on how little we knew when we started versus how relatively simple it would be for us to do today. We started by literally just going to stop and shop and then ordering on Amazon any of the weird flavors that we could try to find and combining all of these different ingredients in our dorm room to make as delicious drinks as we possibly could. After probably months and months of tweaking this and getting the flavors just right, we literally went online and Googled, like, how do you produce a pilot run kind of thing? And we found partners that could help us do this. They came to us and said, yeah, we can do all this formulation work. Oh, no, don't worry. We've already formulated it. We'll send you the recipe. We just need you to make it. And I'm like, are you sure? And so we thought we were sure. And we extrapolated out our recipe that we had made for a 750 milliliter bottle to a million gallon tank, which is the measurement that they needed it in. And we sent them that recipe and they sent us the first draft and it was truly the worst thing we've ever tried. It just did not transfer over at all. It didn't work with the commercial ingredients they were using. So we started from scratch and we went through a process of working with food scientists in the flavor house to articulate exactly what flavor profile we were looking for and then having them build that. And what we actually learned was most of the brands out there basically are selecting from an approved menu of TTB approved flavors. So you know, they say, I want a gin flavor. And the flavor house will say, here's gin one, two, three, and four. Tell me which one you like the most and use that for your gin. And that's what we initially did. And we couldn't quite get the nuance or the complexity in the flavors we were looking for. And so we went to our flavor house and we said, what would this look like if we wanted to not take one of these approved four gin flavors, but instead actually create our own custom gin based with our own flavor blend of botanicals and really create something unique and different and authentic. And so we spent about six, eight months totally redoing the entire flavor bases, having that approved by the TTB. And it really, really paid off because the flavors carry forward in a totally different way now. Um, And we're super, super proud of that process. You mentioned you're a fourth generation entrepreneur in the beverage and alcohol industry. Your family has deep roots in this space. But this feels to me like a bit of a departure from the tradition. Is that the way you see it? I wouldn't say a departure. I also wouldn't say a continuation. I think it's honestly sort of separate. And I'm incredibly lucky to have the unbelievable institutional knowledge that I've been able to just learn through osmosis by being around my uncle, my dad, my grandfather, and have their guidance and advice. But at the same time, I think the reason we are doing this is not at all because of that. And it's certainly not know, inspired by those things. I think what really is the key lesson that we took away as we're doing this is, as we were initially starting this, my uncle said, be very careful about spike seltzers, because I remember in the 1980s, the trend of wine coolers and how they went from basically nothing in the early 80s to being 20% of the wine category by 1986 to being non-existent by 1992. And he warned that spike seltzers might follow a similar trajectory. And so What we very quickly started to realize is rather than making a bet on a specific segment like spike seltzers, which, by the way, we don't believe are a fad that are going to fade out. I think they are lasting here to stay because it sits with a couple of these really key macro trends. But I think what's really key is the one category that has consistently been strong from the 80s through today and continues to grow year over year is that fourth category of beverage alcohol. And it's everything from the wine coolers to Zima's to hard ciders, to spike seltzers, to ready-to-drink canned cocktails, to hard kombuchas. And it's that category, that fourth category, beyond the traditional beer, wine, and spirits, where our company specializes and really looks to find the next niche. And that's really our goal. 
What are some of the macro trends that you find are driving this fourth category of growth? Is it the low carbs? Is it the zero sugar? Is it a combination of these factors? Yeah, so we have identified really three key macro trends that we try to keep all of our innovation aligned with. So number one is health and wellness. That's super important to us and to the consumer as a whole these days. Number two is premiumization. We don't want to price out anyone in the market, but we always want to be delivering more margin for our distributors, for our retailers, and delivering a high quality product to our consumer. And then number three is purpose-driven brands. And so it's incredibly important to us that each one of our brands has a true purpose, a value, a mission, and it stands for something larger than just being a product. So let's dive deeper into number three, purpose-driven brands, because SESH, the way that I understand it, is it's sort of this umbrella beverage company that incubates other beverage brands within it? So Crossed Beverages, XED, is our parent company, exactly, which we will underneath that build a portfolio of brands over the next couple of years. Currently, we have two brands on the market, Sesh and Happy, and we have a couple more in development that are still in stealth mode that hopefully we'll launch over the coming years. So super, super excited about the future, but right now we're very focused on just growing Sesh and Happy. How do you create a purpose-driven brand? Like, do you have a specific process by which you think about this? Is it something that's a little bit more holistic? How would you describe it? For sure. And it was really, really easy for us with Sesh because it came from that true need and purpose where I wanted something that had full flavor, but Nate couldn't sacrifice on the sugar, the calories, the carbs. And it was something that he'd experienced throughout his life. And it wasn't something that only type 1 diabetics are experiencing. It's people across the country, whether it's for a health reason or whether it's just because they're trying to live a healthier lifestyle. And what we realized very quickly was that removing sugar from the American diet was a really, really important thing. And so the purpose for the SESH brand very quickly became removing sugar and contributing back to the diabetic community. And so with those two kind of really strong core elements, in 2022, we expect to donate over 400 and 50,000 units of insulin to people in need, diabetics in need and underserved communities. And we will remove over 400,000 pounds of sugar from the American diet. So really, really excited about both of those things. With future brands, it's a key question of how do we identify the right purpose that connects with this brand? And it really will be about doing a deep dive, a holistic dive with ourselves, with our partner and with the brand to understand what does it stand for and why are we creating it? It's interesting the way that you've described these macro trends, and I've taken note of some other big macro trends that have emerged the last five, 10 years, especially in the D2C space. Speed, thanks to Amazon, you know, efficiency, thanks to a lot of D2C players, quality, trust, personalization. Do any of these resonate with any of your brands in particular? Do you pay attention to any of these cornerstones? A hundred percent. I think authenticity is the most important thing. The consumer, especially the millennial and Gen Z consumer these days, 21 plus, they are incredibly perceptive to kind of faux advertising or try hard advertising. And you have to be so authentic to connect with them and so genuine. And that's something we think about every single day. What is premiumization? Well, super simply, it's about price point. And so it's creating a product that's going to be priced slightly more expensive than the market leader. We don't want to be within the super premium category. We want to be within the you know mass market premium. And then it's about actually making sure that you deliver on that quality. So it starts with the liquid for us, making sure that the liquid is using only the highest quality ingredients and tastes incredibly high quality, good, fresh and delicious. 
because you have to have a high quality liquid to justify a premium price point. And then it's packaging. You have to have premium upscale feeling packaging, which often does cost more to produce in order to give that consumer the feeling of justified spending on a slightly more expensive product. And then it's marketing. If it's you know marketed and communicated in a way that has that upscale premium feeling, again, justifies to the consumer spending a little bit more. What's interesting is we've actually realized that sometimes it almost works in reverse and that having a premium price point indicates to the consumer that it's a premium product. And we've seen that in the past where brands have raised their price and increased sales as a result because the consumer automatically assumes that it's a higher quality product. And so we definitely want to keep the premium price point. We don't want to heavily discount so that we're super cheap. We want to make sure that the consumer understands the value of what they're getting for this great product. You know, what you're saying makes sense. Makes me think of the early days of Peloton after their initial Kickstarter failed at a $1,200 price point for the bike. They actually raised the price of the bike to $2,500. And only in that $2,500 price point did bike sales start to kick up. So super interesting what you're saying and very much on point. You know, one big change in recent years that we've seen contributing to a faster innovation in general in the food space is this growing demand for organic food products and healthier options related to food. As a result, the supply side has evolved. Lots of new players have emerged. But it feels to me like beverages are lagging a little bit behind in terms of innovation. Is that the way you see it? Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that food is far ahead of beverage, both in terms of innovation in new products, healthier products, more innovative products, but also in terms of the way consumers are buying it. If you look at just the rate of e-commerce adoption in food versus beverage, it's almost twice as much in groceries as it is in beverage. And so there is a huge opportunity for us to innovate and create a new category, both of innovative products, but also in delivery methods to the consumer. And so that's really why we see the beverage base as one so ripe for innovation and disruption. Let's talk about those delivery methods for a sec. So point of sale distribution in stores, that is an obvious one. Are you also considering direct to consumer? Absolutely. So for us, vast, vast, vast majority of our business will always come through brick and mortar chain retail accounts. Having said that, we are investing really heavily and have a really thorough strategy to grow our e-commerce channels. There are several e-commerce channels and it's a layered strategy where we do have direct to consumer sales enabled through our website. Additionally, we have a huge partnership with several e-commerce delivery partners like GoPuff, where we're currently the top selling brand in our category per MFC, which we're really excited about. And then platforms like Drizzly as well, where you can you know, get product delivered to you within 30 minutes, 45 minutes, have it delivered right to your door. How do you do e-commerce at scale without pissing off your retail distribution partners? So it's a very, very good question. And the number one way to do it is to always ensure that the price is going to be significantly higher online than it is at store. And that's true just because of the logistics of shipping alcohol. But it's also true because we have to do that to keep our retailers and our distributors happy. Okay, so let's talk about markets. So you guys are live in the US. Uh, What states are you selling in? So Sesh, our first brand, launched in four test markets about a year ago, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, and Illinois. And we had some incredible early results and data from those first four markets. And so with that success, we have now expanded to 11 markets. We're covering most of the East Coast and then Ohio and Illinois as well. We're going to add in the last remaining states on the East Coast, which is North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia, and Maryland over the next couple of months. So we'll be in about 15 states over the next couple of months. 
And then we plan to expand out west and do you know the big Arizona, Texas, Colorado, and California push probably next fall resets, moving into spring resets as well. So we'll figure out exactly which markets we stagger then. And you still hold a Canadian passport, right, Zeke? So how do you think about Canada as part of your expansion plans, or do you think about it? It's funny, we would love to expand to Canada. We've had some early stage conversations with several overseas partners, whether it's in Canada, Mexico, Australia. Right now, we have so much room to grow within the United States and even within each market that we're in currently that we want to make sure that we're going really deep before we go wide and proving really strong rate of sale within each of our markets before we spread ourselves too thin. So we're always open to expanding to overseas markets, including Canada, which probably would be one of the first just because of how logistically simple it would be. But it's not kind of first on our priority list. So New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Illinois, these are the four pilot markets. What was it about these first four states? What was it that sort of sparked the initial opportunity here? It was a combination of a couple of things. And number one was we wanted to test different types of markets to understand where we were selling well and why we were selling well and inform our expansion. So we tested independent versus chain markets. We tested markets that were very densely urban populated. We tested markets that were much more rural. We tested markets where we had liquor wholesaler and we tested markets where we had a beer wholesaler. And all of this data helped us then inform where we were going to expand. And one of the really key learnings coming out of this testing process was that we were systematically performing considerably better in markets that had channel exclusivity than markets that didn't have channel exclusivity. And the reason for that is because Sesh is the only canned cocktail that can be sold anywhere you can buy a beer. So in markets like New York, in markets like Pennsylvania, in markets like Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Texas, you can't buy a canned cocktail in a grocery store, but you can buy Sash in a grocery store. And so Sash has a really, really strong moat as being the only canned cocktail that can be sold in any grocery store in the United States. And that's a incredibly, incredibly strong proposition in markets with channel exclusivity. What about these other brands like White Claw, Truly Hard, High Noon, Are there other competitors that you're paying attention to? And what is it that you feel like some of these brands have done well? And where do you feel like there's still some opportunity here? Definitely. I mean, they are all orders of magnitude larger than us. We would be incredibly lucky to get a small portion of the White Club, the Truly, the High Noon business. I think they have all done incredible jobs and built great businesses. High Noon, especially, I think has done such a great job in recent years, giving that more premium offering to the consumer with higher quality ingredients and a better taste profile. What's interesting about High Noon is that it is a liquor base. And so in many of our markets, we're not directly competing with High Noon because we're trying to sell in the grocery stores that can't sell High Noon, that can't sell cut water, that can't sell these other canned cocktails, which means that our direct competitor in those stores often end up being the White Claws, the Trulies, and the other Spike Seltzers of the world. And we don't have anything against those. We actually think, generally speaking, the data has shown that we're a plus one purchase rather than an instead purchase for consumers who are buying a standard Spike Seltzer like a White Claw or Truly, because rather than having their you know, standard fruit flavor, mango or blackberry spike seltzer, they actually are interested in having a full flavor canned cocktail in addition at the same price point and with the same 110 calories and zero sugar. Your backers, your investors, you guys have some notable people on board, including Strauss Zelnick, former chairman of CBS, Edgar Bronfman Jr., former CEO of Seagram's and others. How do you think about 
your funding partners and their role within the business if they have one beyond simply writing a check? I think that's one of the most critical things to us building this organization is having some incredible investors and advisors who have been super supportive the entire time and are incredibly strategic. And all of our investors and advisors are strategic value adds beyond just the money that they invested and put behind the business. They open their Rolodexes to us, they make introductions, but most importantly, they're there for advice. And they've all built incredible businesses before. They've been in the situations we're in. And just being able to learn from them and, and get their take on different situations, how to manage people, how to build an organization is incredibly, incredibly valuable and something we are so, so grateful for. You've been at this a few years now, but you come at this business as a first-time founder. What does this mean to you personally? And how do you think about the success of growing this business versus sort of potentially gaining corporate experience if this fails? Do you feel like, given your generational lifeblood, that, that you're an entrepreneur at heart? How do you think about it? It's a really good question. And truthfully, I haven't thought that far in advance to what's next. I am all into building this to be the most unbelievable company it can possibly be and focused on that every single day. And I think that truthfully, I think in my mind, you know, at some point would love to get that corporate experience, but I do feel like I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And, you know, we love building brands. And so whether it's Sesh or Happy or the next brand that we're working on or the brand after that, I think this is really where our heart lies. This is what we're good at. And this is what we're probably going to keep doing. Okay, so you've raised four and a half million to date. And as you sort of expand this and try and reach your next goalpost, so to speak, do you feel like this is enough funding to get you to your next big milestone? Do you feel like you need to raise more capital at this point? We'll definitely have to raise again at some point. For now, we're, we're in a decent position. And you know, it's certainly a question of choosing to grow faster and lose more money or you know have more sustain disciplined growth and become profitable faster. It's also a question of how many brands we launch. And so that's sort of something we sit down with our board and we sit down with our investors and we say, let's make a decision together of at which point do we think it's going to be good to bring on another round? At what point is it important to cut spend or increase the burn strategically a little bit? And so that's just kind of a long-term strategic decision that we reassess every month or so. Completely unrelated question, but sort of come up top of my head here. So the trends in cannabis, do you feel like there's any correlation to what's happening there versus some of the trends that are happening on the beverage side of things? Absolutely. And I'm not an expert by any means on the cannabis space, but I do think that there's a huge amount of parallels. And I think what the data has really clearly shown is that cannabis consumption actually does take away from alcohol consumption in markets where it's legal. And so I think understanding how to hedge that is a really important thing for anyone in our space. And thinking about innovating in the cannabis space is something that's going to be really, really important. I think it's still far away because right now, I mean, even CBD is not being carried in large, big box national retailers. And so it's very hard to scale a lot of those businesses at this point. But I do think there's a huge, huge amount of opportunity once the regulatory landscape opens up a little bit. What about sort of generation consumption patterns? So you mentioned at the top of the episode that you grew up drinking spirits, whiskeys, et cetera, with your grandfather. And now, you know, you're growing this portfolio of brands that are in a slightly different space, if not the same space, but slightly different swim lane. What are the consumption patterns with sort of Gen Zs and millennials that are slightly or, or somewhat different than the way that you remember consuming those spirits with your grandfather or your father for that matter? 
So obviously the highlight is that they're moving towards health and wellness, lower ABV, more convenience. And that's kind of the general trend that's been identified across the demographic and across the age group. And I think that's what's really playing into the rise of these spike seltzers, the canned drinks, and that fourth category. But I think what's really interesting is that another trend that's more underrated and less spoken about that's really becoming prevalent is less brand loyalty. And I think when my grandfather was my age, he was drinking one brand every single time he had a drink. That was his go-to. And every one of his friends was the same way. And that doesn't really happen anymore. Sometimes people will be in the tequila mood and they'll have tequila. Sometimes people will be in the mood for a spike seltzer. Sometimes people will be in the mood for a wine. Sometimes people will be in the mood for a cocktail. And I think that it's less about brand loyalty and more about understanding occasions and understanding how to really fill the right occasion for a consumer and occupy a specific occasion that no other brand does. And so if you can really own an occasion, you can really, when I mean, look at Corona and the beach, and that's just kind of the occasion that they've owned and made their identity. And most people won't drink a Corona in a normal setting if they're out at a bar, but whenever they are at the beach, that's like a go-to, they will do it every time. And that's a really, really powerful thing for that brand. Have you identified what the occasion is that Sesh, for example, neatly fits into? Definitely. And we haven't yet owned that occasion. So we're working on that. But the occasion for Sesh is really twofold. Occasion number one is sort of that casual pregame before going out or before dinner when you're hanging out with a couple of friends. And then occasion number two is related to health and wellness again. So it's really like I worked out that day and now I'm trying to unwind after a workout or after work and all that. You know, I'm just thinking the holy grail here seems to me, given what you're saying, that the brand that's able to both build loyalty and own the occasion is the winner, right? Like if White Claw is going to garner more market share than Truly Hard or High Noon over time, I don't even know what the numbers are, but let's assume that was their goal. They would have to do a better job at building both sides of this coin. No? I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. So do we have time to talk about 13th Floor Ventures? We absolutely do, yes. What is 13th Floor Ventures and how are you managing your time between building beverage brands and running that shop? So 13th Floor Ventures is really a side project that a close friend and I have embarked on over the last couple of months. He is really managing the day-to-day of it. I would say that I am spending my nights and few hours every weekend working on it. My day-to-day is working on Cross, building that business 100%. There is no question about that. It is a currently passive investment vehicle that we are just super interested in the in the category of Web3 in the metaverse and found a really, really amazing investment that we wanted to make in the space through one of my friend's connections and then brought in some of our close friends and family to invest in that deal with us together because we weren't well enough capitalized on our own to make that investment. But it's a passive thing that we're not actively involved in managing day to day and are just really, really excited to be more involved in the space. And when it goes super well, my co-founder Evan will you know, more actively run that day to day and I'll continue to run cross beverages day to day. How does one identify what asset classes have potential investment opportunities in this space? 
it took us a really, really long time and a lot of research to basically understand where we wanted to be putting our capital in this space because truthfully, almost everything we were encountering felt a little bit like crypto bros who didn't know what they were talking about trying to sell you something. And that is not something that we were interested in. We wanted to find an actual disciplined investment approach. And so we were really lucky to find some great partners who have a vertically integrated real estate investment model in the metaverse. And so together with them, we started looking at some of the land and trying to analyze where could we actually generate real yield and cash flow rather than just betting on the upside of hopefully land will appreciate. And so that was really the first question. We wanted to understand how could we de-risk it with legitimate cash flow. So we only found one real opportunity to be able to do that and started that process to review that. And I think that's the biggest upside for us is the actual cash flow. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, For those that want to research this space more deeply and better understand what might be a viable metaverse or Web3 opportunity, what sources would you suggest that they check out? So the best source that truthfully taught us, gave us like 90% of the intro foundational stuff we needed was essays by a guy named Matthew Ball. He wrote eight introductory essays to the metaverse, and I would highly recommend reading all eight of them. They're a little bit long, but they're incredibly clearly articulated, and they explain really a lot about what you need to know. And then after reading that, JP Morgan and Citibank both published really, really in-depth reports on the metaverse, they're available online if you just Google them. And I would recommend reading those as well. They give a really, really good analysis on the economic side of it. Noted. We will include that in the show notes. Zeke, thanks so much for the time. Where can people follow what you're up to on social, what Sesh is up to? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. At Drink Sesh on Instagram is our Instagram. At Happy Saki is Happy Saki's Instagram. And then online, we are drinksesh.com and happysaki.com. And you can always reach out to me directly at Zeke at xedbeverages.com if you have any questions. Cocktail meets seltzer, all flavor, no BS. Zeke, thanks so much, man. Appreciate the time. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the city of angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. 
I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.